everybody. Hey, this is the Product Highs Podcast. My name is Brian Castle. Thanks for tuning in. As always, today you're going to hear my conversation with my friend Jane Portman. She is a very talented UI UX designer, and she's become pretty well known for that, as well as using the productized consulting model, which she's been very successful at. Uh, one of the very first productized consultants that I knew of. But since then, she's actually built up her portfolio of products, getting into books on UI design for SaaS applications, and then building a few SaaS applications of her own. So we talked all about that, how she built a tiny SaaS product called Tiny Reminder. And then most recently, she has partnered up with a few folks, and they're launching something called userlist.io around the email automation space for SaaS. So really interesting stuff. We covered a lot of ground, as I always try to do in these interviews, starting with you know how she got into the productized consulting model and how she's been able to leverage that. I also had an interesting part of the conversation talking to her about where she's she's based, Russia. You know, she's one of the few people who come from that part of the world who's really been able to break out and really build a name for herself, a brand, price her services, and come out with products in a way that most people from the U.S. or Europe, um, you would expect people to, you know, present her, her stuff in that way. So... Yeah, that was just a really interesting part of the conversation. And we talked all about, you know, kind of showing up in person, coming out to the conferences, making the trip, raising families with little kids, bootstrapping, self-funding, hiring developers, working with partners versus working solo. Again, we really covered a whole lot of ground here. Um, Managing your own products. I mean, the list goes on. So uh, without further ado, here is my conversation with Jane Portman. Enjoy. All right, I'm here with Jane Portman. Jane, how's it going? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me over here. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. So, Jane, you run UIBreakfast.com, and uh, you've been pretty well known in in our circles, bootstrappers, self-funded startups, SaaS folks, because you've been kind of like the go-to expert and go-to person on all things UI design, UX design, especially for SaaS products. And you've recently got into building a couple of SaaS products of your own, which I'm excited to hear more about. So, I mean, with that, why don't you, how do you introduce yourself these days for those who who don't know you? (laughs) I'm an independent UI UX consultant uh, by trade, but besides doing consulting, I work on other things such as teaching people through books and also making products of my own. I have two right now. One is Tiny Reminder, which is a reminder tool for busy people. And the other, we just started out with two awesome co-founders. It's still in the works. It's called UserList.io. Awesome. So that first one, it, I think the audio may have cut out there. It's called Tiny Reminder. And it's, it's pretty cool. It actually is what it says. It sounds like it's, it's a tiny reminder for things. But yeah, we're going to get into all that. You know, I, I think you've also kind of become pretty well known, especially with my audience around the fact that you've built your services using productized consulting as a model for quite a while now. I think you were one of the very first productized consultants that I knew of. And it, it's been really interesting to see how you've been able to basically build your your whole services side around that model. Can you talk a bit about that? Like, why don't we start there? You know, um, like, when did you actually go out on your own? And when did you get into that model of kind of the productized route? Yeah, absolutely. It's been absolutely gold mine for me. <laughs> uh, so let's scroll back to, let's say, 2013, um, or maybe 2012. I was having my first son back then and pregnant with my second son. 
And before that, I was a creative director of an agency, but all this kids thing made me totally reconsider my priorities. So I decided, why don't I try my, uh, you know, selling my services online? And uh, I started building my authority and everything with a book, which really didn't succeed too much besides just being, you know, a proof of my authority. But what really did gain traction in 2000, early 2014 was my productized service. That's when it just became popular. Everybody, it, it became a big trend. Brennan Dunn started publishing articles about that. Uh, you started publishing articles about that. <laughs> and uh, all those articles, they contained lists of services. And mine was a quick guest, like a frequent guest on those articles. And that brought in some very nice clients and a little bit of that traction, fame, I don't know, whatever you call it. Yeah. You know, I kind of want to ask about that because I, I'm sure there are people listening who are like, you know, it sounds like you just launched a productized service and then all of a sudden Brennan Dunn found it and started linking to it and you get linked in these blog posts, right? Like you you must have been doing something before that, that kind of um, get, put your name on the map, right? I had a few interesting, you know, facts. I got to know Brennan Dunn because I bought a premium package of his book, which included a personal consultation. So a few months prior to that, we just had a phone call, paid phone call, and we kind of introduced each other. And uh, a few months later, we all met up at MicroConf in Vegas. And just showing up uh, as a live human being in Vegas, I think, was uh, meant a lot to everybody because that kind of proves that you are not just an internet person, but also a live person. And that's where I actually met Brennan and he signed up, uh, was one of my first productized consulting clients. And I also had an interesting coincidence with uh, Joanna Weeb. Because when I was just starting out, I did a little bit of work on Odesk, uh, you know, not the most brilliant way of making money, <laughs> but I worked for an Australian agency and they did some contract work for Joanna. And at MicroConf in 2014, we just caught up and I was like, Joanna, remember that product of yours? It was me who designed the widget. And it was like, wow. <laughs> and uh, that was another sort of magical personal connection that grew through all these years. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, showing up in person. And for you, I mean, you live in Russia. So coming all the way to MicroConf Vegas and meeting these people in person and really becoming part of these communities here, that really makes a difference. Yeah. And moreover, I had a six-month-old baby on me at right. that time. <laughs> and I had to make like breastfeeding breaks and stuff like that, but it was so worth it. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, early on, you were working for an agency, and then you went out on your own to kind of gain more freedom and flexibility. And I guess you started very early on doing work through Odesk, but then pretty quickly jumping off of that. Once your freelance work started to really gain traction, did you immediately go into that productized consulting uh, route where, like, if you look at your services page now, you've got a couple of different packages or the way that you sell your consulting in, in a few different packages there, like... How did your pricing and packaging kind of evolve? Great question. So the service that made me famous in 2014 was monthly creative direction, um, which is a recurring monthly service. And I don't offer that anymore, but it was a pretty unusual model. So that was, you know, just a great eye catcher for a few years. And it was amazing because I just wrecked in amazing monthly revenue from, let's say, three, four or five clients. And I didn't have to hunt for any new projects at all. But unfortunately, that led to burnout because you've got to save some space for fresh, wonderful projects that come unexpectedly or some other things. So I had a break from that. 
And then uh, I decided to focus exclusively on web applications and their design. And therefore, uh, from that was kind of refreshed consulting start. And I wrote down that product right now on my website so that people who come in can see what exactly I can help them with. Got it. And so the way that you've been able to attract your most ideal clients, you know, SaaS companies who you can benefit the most, but also I'm sure you you enjoy working with the most is by publishing content and even publishing a book all about UI design, UI audits for SaaS companies. Is that how you've kind of made that connection? Yeah, that is definitely a direct logical connection. Of course, in real life, things are way more complex and people who are you know, who might enjoy the book and doing things on their own, they might not be the ideal client, while on the contrary, people who have larger budgets don't necessarily read through the books. Uh, so they don't necessarily overlap. But the whole thing, just focusing on a single problem, you know, single format, a single problem, helping founders in some way or the other, that has been great, definitely. And also some conference talks as well. Yeah, I mean, the more you publish about this stuff and the more you kind of carve out a niche for yourself as the expert when it comes to UI, UX design for SaaS, you just become that go-to expert and, you know, invited to speak at conferences. And yeah, awesome. And by the way, this kind of niching, it seems narrow, but in fact, the number of SaaS companies is enormous. So it's not niche at all. It's just a format. Uh, so you shouldn't be really afraid to focus that well. You can go as far as, you know, web applications for medical services. That is narrow and you can go even more. But I'm pretty wide still. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so by packaging up your services and pricing them the way that you have, like instead of the typical designer who prices by the hour or sometimes, you know, by the project, you put together these kind of predictable packages with very set prices. You can go right to your website and see the actual prices that you charge. Have you become like comfortable with that model, you know, without, you know, the, the typical fear is, well, you're, I'm going to spend way too many hours on this to make it worth my time and, and that sort of thing, or, or scope creep. Like, how do you kind of deal with those questions? Right. Great question. Uh, it might be scary to put a fixed price tag, but there are some ways to kind of protect yourself a little bit. First, you, you include all this potential overhead into the price. So you don't just uh, put the lowest price tag you can. You put a reasonable price tag. And um, w one of my favorite things is delighting clients. So I always account for you know some overhead for those extra few hours to delight them. Or that can be extra hours for a little bit of scope creep, which is probably fine. But when you're writing a sales page for productized consulting, you have the ability to protect yourself a little bit. Uh, for example, I have a paragraph on the custom UI audit sales page, which says that I am the ultimate person who defines the scope, whatever the key screens we're going to be working with. Because, of course, web applications range in size and complexity and whatever not. You cannot make one size fits all, but we can do, let's say, I don't know, two or three really complex screens or uh, way more, but simpler, it really depends. So this way we kind of stay sane and uh, the customer is still happy because they get that deal or the sense of predictability, which is, which is really important for them. Yeah. You know, I, I want to ask you about something that I don't hear really talked about too much, but it's it's just so common. And, you know, people these days, especially in our circles, are doing business together, working together all over the world, across continents, in all different markets, all different regions. And it's interesting that you come from, you know, Russia, and you work so much with folks in the United States and Europe, and you come to these conferences, and you're in these circles, you've become really well known. 
But also the way that you price your services and you present your services, it it really comes off as a much more like, I don't know, I guess for lack of a better word, like westernized kind of <laughs> package, right? Like, how do you think about that? And what is kind of the, I don't know, the scene, or if you will, around where you live in, in Russia? Because I, I know other folks, I work with other people in like Eastern Europe and other places that are charging just fractions of what you charge and the type of work that you do. So I don't know, can you talk a bit about that, like that kind of balance? And Yeah, so it's a big topic. I am happy to leverage the cost of living that I have here and the rates that I charge which I totally, you know, upscale US rates, actually. But I have gone such far away and I've done such plenty of work to get to this place. So I'm, I'm absolutely comfortable doing that. Uh, and I mean, the work speaks for itself. I mean, just look at your site and your products. It's, it's amazing. Thank you. Well, I think the question here is to make necessary investments when it's time, because in the beginning, I invested a lot of time to just study how everything works in the US market, uh, what kind of you know, rates you can charge. Um, one life-changing article was one by Patrick McKenzie. I think the topic was something like how I transitioned from $100 per hour developer into like $10,000 per week consultant. Four years ago, I learned that if I call myself a consultant and focus on business value, I will have much better you know, chances uh, to succeed. With the same kind of craft, I could really have sold the same kind of craft in a totally different atmosphere. I'm really happy I went with the business way. <laughs> yeah, it is really eye-opening when you start to think about it that way. Yeah, and uh, I, I can totally recommend Brennan Dunn's resources for that. He has a ton of free stuff and also books and more expensive workshops, whatever you fancy. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I just think again, I've I've worked with and I and I've seen and I've interviewed so many people in these markets, right, in Eastern Europe or Asia or other places where clearly the cost of living is, is so much lower, but there's just amazing talent out there. And, and of course, like the world is very flat these days. Everybody is so accessible. I, I always kind of wondered why more people aren't kind of doing what you're doing and coming from those regions of the world. I have an example right here. Uh, I have a younger brother. He's two years younger than me. And he's a brilliant iOS developer, like rocket ship, you know, smart <laughs> and uh, super awesome. But he just lacks uh, motivation for doing all this self-promotional work. He knows the drill. He knows English pretty well. He has seen me do all these you know, baby steps towards working with US clients. He's still making pretty decent money working online, but he has not invested the time into growing his authority because it just takes a lot of time and enthusiasm and also maybe getting out of your comfort zone and also, you know, spending money, for example, for flying out to those conferences instead of spending them on other things because that is a great investment. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, let's kind of get back to your story here. You know, I've come to kind of know your story and what I associate it with is the whole concept of the stair step approach, right? Like you've started with productized consulting and you continued it to offer those services, but throughout you you went into selling a book and then into SaaS products. Can you talk a bit about that? Like what was your first step beyond just services into say a product? Right. The first product was a book called Mastering App Presentation in the fall of 2013. And I just learned the basic drill of how to launch and market things, but I totally didn't succeed. Uh, after that, I had a book deal with Envision two years later, which brought me publicity, but I didn't have to do any kind of marketing. And after that, last year, I had the UI audit, which was way more successful. I actually made some money with it, which was decent for me at least. And uh, I think overall revenue 
after last year was something like $15,000 for the book, which I think is significant revenue for the product because I know how hard these product dollars come in. Like it, it just takes some effort. Especially for a book, uh, an info product that it's digital download, passive income. I mean, that's, I mean, it, I don't want to say pure profit because obviously you, you spend a lot of time and effort writing it and bringing it out. But of course, once it's out, I think it's not only the revenue that it generates, but it's the notoriety and the authority that it brings. Yeah, absolutely. So, and then I have always been an aspiring SaaS founder because I, I work with SaaS founders. And of course, I want to do my stuff and, you know, make my own decisions, call my own shots. So uh, last year, same time of year, I kind of conceived this product idea for Tiny Reminder. And I'm so happy this was a small SaaS uh, because it just allowed me to learn all these lessons without getting into huge product. It's a fairly simple reminder product, and uh, I was the only founder. I outsourced the development work uh, to wonderful German developer Benedict Dijker, and uh, that is also that was also a very a great idea because I had to almost slap myself on the wrist before building new features. I had to pay him <laughs> cash for every single thing, as opposed to you know most founders who are from the developer background. They can just keep building stuff. They just build it. Yeah. And that's a very dangerous path because new features do not save you from the lack of product market fit, for example, and they just don't solve most of the problems. I relate to that so much right now <laughs> with, with what I've been building with, with Ops Calendar. I mean, I there are definitely days where I'm just like, oh, I wish I knew how to build a backend you know, software product myself because these features seem really simple to build. I just don't have the skills to build them. I have to pay someone to build them. And I'm not partnered with a developer. So everything is just, I have to pay for it. And that's been, you know, when people talk about the long, slow ramp of death for SaaS, you know, for me, I, I'm curious to hear your take on it. The slow part of it is the cash flow, being able to continuously invest into the development of this product as you get it off the ground and get that product market fit. Was this basically your very first SaaS product that you were going to build for yourself? Yes, absolutely. I was very excited about being able to make all the decisions myself, but I also made sure not to get into the technical debt and burden of maintaining it. Because, for example, some kind of product you just cannot run without developer co-founder. You really can't because they're technical heavy. My goal here was to build a small self-sustainable, you know, self-onboarding product that would bring me extra cash, but more importantly, serve as a learning experience. Well, of course, I had a secret hopes that it might spiral out of control and get super successful because there are some components to the product idea. For example, the virality of it, because it's client-facing, uh, that we're supposed to you know, get it off the ground very fast. And also the freemium uh, model as well. I could say that in terms of learning experience, it was an amazing experience. And generally speaking, it's a small, well-rounded, self-sustained product. But I cannot call it a commercial success because I think we have totally not hit the product market fit here, just judging by the number of conversions. It's still really new though, right? Like, so we're talking here in like late 2017, almost November 2017 here. And you're, when did the actual idea for this and when did you break ground on Tiny Reminder? The idea appeared uh, in the end of October last year and uh, we launched 
will launch to the white public in the first days of January, which was super fast to me. And that was a fantastic way to do it. Wow. Yeah. Like two months to go from idea to basically MVP. Yeah, I think one month took me just to get the uh, to build a site, collect early interest, collect pre-orders and find a contractor. And it took another month to build the thing and to set up everything else that's needed for the launch. That is, you know, onboarding and other things, little videos and everything. <laughs> you know, so there, I know that there are a lot of non-technical people in this audience. And I was definitely in this boat, you know, when I started working on Ops Calendar kind of struggling with making technical decisions, like what programming language to build it on? What, what kind of server do I need to set up? How do I evaluate developers that I'm going to hire for this? Like, how did you deal with those questions very early on? That was a big challenge. So I had a few talks. I think I had at least two phone calls with developers who I trust and who I know are qualified. And they kind of gave me an insight. What is the state of modern technology? or the best option for building it. And then I had, I, I've been super lucky that Benedict approached me himself, uh, volunteering to build it for me. And then I, Benedict belongs to a community and uh, all my friends, my mastermind group went crazy saying like, well, it's going to be beautiful under the hood because Benedict is the best. So um, his cost was totally more than, as opposed to if I found someone, you know, somewhere, some unknown poor soul, um, but in spite of the cash problem, I mean, being expensive, it totally gave me confidence in the technical decisions. I was trusting him from day one. Yeah. And I mean, the fact that it's a very simple product and he's really good so he can move very quickly, the costs wouldn't be as bad as they normally would for a larger SaaS. That's true. Absolutely. And also that reality check for building new features, it, it played well. So the product didn't like bloat up very fast because I had to uh, find cash resources for every single thing to build. And so with Tiny Reminder, it's basically like reminding people to, uh, hey, you're late on that payment, or hey, you owe me that document, or like when you need to send somebody a, a nudge, to, is that basically the use case? Uh, yes, absolutely. But as opposed to other things like that, it also has an integrated form builder. That is, everything is bound to the form. So you can request some information, you can request files, and you can request to-dos, uh, to-do items in there. And then when people are done filling out that form, we stop sending reminders. That's how it works. Very nice. So you also chose to go with the freemium model here. So there's like a free plan. And I'm looking at it today. Obviously, the pricing may change, but there's free and then 12 99 a month. Um, tell me about that. I mean, I actually think it's a good decision for this type of product, especially with the virality. Can you tell me about your thinking on that? I still think that freemium is a good idea. Uh, we've experimented a lot. We've changed limits. We've changed, you know, pricing values. We've played around with features. For example, file upload is now available on the on this paid plan. Um, while we used to limit the free plan only in features, only in volume. But then I had the eye-opening conversation with uh, Bridget Harris of You Can Book Me. And she told me that usually the free users and the paid users are completely different people almost from day one. So the free version needs to be simple, bringing value, but also obviously dysfunctional so that there is a reason to upgrade fast if you see the value. Uh, so the current pricing that you see is the result of those conversations. However, I would really not recommend <laughs> the freemium model to people who are starting out because first it delays the cash flow from, you know, into some distant future. 
because only a small fraction of people convert. You might have a successful number of users in the free plan. However, the number of people on paid plan can be small. Like that is the situation right now. Do you find uh, with the free plan, like, I mean, the thinking is that, that the free plan is essentially a marketing channel for the whole product to get more volume of people into the app to have, a, like, even if it's a 1% conversion rate, converting 1% of a thousand people is better than converting, you know, 10% of 20 people, right? <laughs> Right, exactly. As Claire Salentrop says, uh, every person who uses the free version becomes your mini marketer. So <laughs> you're essentially, I enjoyed this idea very much because I like marketing, but I'm definitely not a pro, like not a rock solid pro in marketing. So the idea of investing time for spreading the word, as opposed to the idea of having a freemium plan, the latter was totally more preferable. That's why we went with it. Very cool. So, I mean, you're only about like, what, 10 or 11 months into it since the launch. What's been happening with Tiny Reminder? I mean, I know that you've you've also since moved on into uh, user list, which we'll talk about in just a second. Like, I, do you intend for Tiny Reminder to just be kind of a small side product in your portfolio, uh, not a full-time focus or, or what? Um, I've got to tell you a secret. What actually triggered the new product is an acquisition offer on Tiny Reminder. And we actually agreed on the price, but it's very much, it's very slow. It's, it still has not happened. Uh, it's still in the works, but it kind of liberated me from that lack of product market fit that uh, I experienced. I can tell you right away what kind of problems I faced. That was the, the versatility of the tool actually played against us because it was an unknown product category and also applicable to a lot of people. For example, I don't know, podcasters, content providers, event organizers, um, and freelancers to begin with. But such kind of lack of focus was a big mistake. So if I didn't get the acquisition offer, I would probably bump in extra, a little of um, resources into positioning it more narrowly. I'm hoping for the happy exit right now. <laughs> That's why we started on a new product. Yeah, like tell me that story. Like how how and when did that acquisition offer come in? I think I should better not talk about it okay, right now. I figured. <laughs> because, since, it, since it's not done yet. And uh, of course, as in anything in the world, it might fall through. Sure. But it was so liberating to hear that uh, professional marketers can take it into their hands and get it rolling really well. Totally. So, okay. So kind of moving on, actually moving really quickly, because when I caught this on Twitter just a few weeks ago, um, this thing called userlist.io, and I saw that you were involved in it. And I was like, didn't Jane just launch that tiny reminder thing? And she's doing all this other stuff. Like, where did this even come from? This user list? Like, so where did it come from? The idea for the product came to me when I was actually working on Tiny Reminder in early days. I was setting up onboarding emails in Intercom, and I was just really not happy with the UX of it. Just the process. It was kind of slow, kind of buggy, and just frustrating at times. And I was dreaming up of a similar thing, just not as expensive and more, you know, lightweight and beautiful, probably. But I was all hands in tiny reminders, so that idea had to wait. So when I had heard those uh, acquisition news, I was, uh, you know, instantly off to seeking the next idea. <laughs> and uh, just on spur of the moment, I came up with the domain name, which I, I think is awesome, because around user release, you can build pretty much everything that's related to the internals of a SaaS business. You can build in analytics, you can build in, you know, email onboarding, and email automation, you can build in any kind of widgets, 
everything. So when you talk about email automation for your SaaS, so the, the headline on the site right now is lightweight email automation for your SaaS. When I think of email automation, like even that is still really broad. So like, is that onboarding for new users who've signed up for a free trial and they need information about how to learn the app, get onboarded, maybe find out about the premium plans? Or, or, and, or is it about marketing automation, like lead magnets that bring them to a free trial? Like what, which side of, of that fence are you kind of working on? I was thinking of the first uh, because uh, the email marketing space is pretty crowded already. But when the user signs up, it's a, a different story starts. And onboarding, as you described, is just one narrow use case. We're in the fa- so uh, I have two awesome co-founders. Uh, this time, I'm not cashing out for development. <laughs> I have Benedict as a partner now, so he's going to be building stuff. And that's the guy you worked with on Tiny Reminder. Yes, I know. I, I tested him in the field. He's amazing. It's going to be brilliant. And also Claire Salentrop, she was director of marketing at Calendly. Oh, wow. Employer number two. Yeah, so she grew it from almost from scratch. And uh, I was super super thrilled that she said yes she was number one on my list and i was really not hoping for her you know agreeing to this little venture but i guess every professional at heart wants to build their own stuff and in this case i just brought all the stuff uh, all the components of the equations to the table i'm gonna do product benedict's gonna do development and she's gonna do marketing and it clicks in together so she said yes and uh, we're in the phase of research right now awesome how did you meet claire Oh, great question. She was somewhat visible online. I think she actually left feedback on Tiny Reminder at some point. And then I said, oh, thank you. That's super nice. And then I just Googled her name and I discovered that she's pretty prominent in the world. <laughs> and I invited her onto my podcast and uh, she's just a wonderful human being. So we chatted ever since. Awesome. So like, where is it at right now? Only a couple of months in now of working with your new partners and getting this uh, idea. Where, where is it at? We have, uh, we agreed like a month ago and signed a little informal contract. It's not actually a little because we tried to do it the right way, describing all the potential wrong situations up front. So it's actually like 11 pages long, but it's informal because we're in the different countries. So we signed that like a month ago and agreed to get started on November Uh, November 1st. Uh, Therefore, uh, we're just uh, scheduling customer interviews right now, yourself being one of them. Right. (laughs) Right. Uh, And we will determine what we're going to build judging on that jobs to be done and everything along those lines. However, no matter what you talk about, email automation, email just in the base of everything. So whatever we decide to build, email just feature number one. Uh, Therefore, it's going to be the MVP or something along those lines. Right. You know, when I, and I haven't had that call yet, I think it's scheduled with Claire sometime in November. But, you know, what kind of interested me about this idea, first of all, I don't really know much about it yet, other because there's very little information on the, on the, like the coming soon site. I know that it's email automation for your SaaS. What interests me about it is, because right now I'm building Ops Calendar, a SaaS, and I haven't really built, like I started working on some of the marketing stuff. We started out with content and I will be building out more email automation stuff around marketing and generating leads. And for that, I use Drip. But the other side of it, the actual onboarding of new users, I have nothing at this point. Like there is no onboarding email sequence. Um, I don't have anything that leads up to the end of the free trial. I don't have anything to bring lower plan people into the higher plan tiers, you know, nothing that's like tracking usage in the app and that triggers 
letters, emails. Like I have none of that. I, I haven't used intercom at all for like, I've tried it in the past, but I haven't implemented it yet, if ever on ops calendar. So yeah, I'm just kind of like, it's, it's one of those spaces that I know needs to be filled and I haven't given it any thought whatsoever. And I know that there are a lot of SaaS products that are kind of like in this development phase that are treating the whole onboarding and like user communication side of it as like an afterthought. And I'm definitely falling into that group. Yeah, definitely. Because it takes a lot of time to think through and to write those emails that will, you know, account for different user situations. And we're hoping that we're going to take this narrow niche of specifically SaaS products because, you know, email marketing is definitely taken. But for SaaS, there is a number of scenarios like onboarding, dunning, which is, you know, email card failing, credit card failing, and uh, as you mentioned, plan upgrades, other stuff. We can really think through that for the user so they can kind of drop in and have that uh, base already sketched out. And that hopefully is going to be a great thing. Yeah. And I mean, you know, not to do your customer development call here on the podcast, but, um, (laughs) you know, I think the more that you can, you know, there's do it for you, but there's also like kind of like done with you where uh, you just give me the templates for the email sequences or like the best practices that you've seen work on all the best SaaS applications. And then I can just go in and like, you know, tweak the name of the company and tweak some details um, to just, like get me get me over that hurdle faster, like getting some sort of onboarding sequence in place faster rather than having to write it all from scratch and put it into place in some other tool like that's that would be ideal. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, you know, there are some kinds of products like Tiny Remind there. They're like vitamins to your workflow. They're not mandatory. Tools like email marketing, once they have a steep onboarding curve, so you really have to take time, set everything up. But once you do, <laughs> you're very, very much on the hook for a lifetime or for a long while because the cost of switching is really high, probably at least time-wise. Yep. You know, I guess before we kind of wrap up here, I want to ask you about working with partners, you know, so, and I know that your partnership here is very new. You're only what, like a month or two into it. I've gone both routes on various projects over the years. I've I've had partners. I've worked with friends on like short-term projects, but most of my core businesses, I've been kind of the solo founder and I am the solo on, on ops calendar that I'm working on right now. How has it been different for you now, like working with partners? Well, as you mentioned, we just started out, so it's hard to judge and everything, all the potential problems are still ahead, but it feels amazing to, first, no cash will now exchange hands, so you don't have to stock up individual savings to finance new features. That's a relief. And the the main relief is having the qualified marketing person do the marketing and research. That is just feels like a mountain off my shoulder. <laughs> so <laughs> just uh, see someone who does specifically that, take care of that. And just, you know, just three professional people coming together, bringing the value to the table. Feels gorgeous. Let's see how it works out. Right. You know, I in my experiences working with partners, it, it's somewhat limited. I'd say most of the time I've worked solo, but... I have worked with partners on some things and what I loved about it was how incredibly fast we were able to move. You know, like if I'm only responsible for my half or my third of of the thing and and the other guys are, are doing their jobs, we just tend to make so much more progress so much faster than I ever have being solo and just hiring contractors to fill in the gaps. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's definitely one of the benefits. I guess the other thing that I miss when I'm solo is 
just making decisions like as a solo founder every single decision both high level and like ground level like right now every week i have to decide like all right which of these hundred different features are we going to prioritize for this week before i run out of money <laughs> to pay the developers you know and that's a really tough decision and and i have to make those you know so when you have partners you can kind of bat it around and you know you can kind of push back on each other on things like that Absolutely. You know, calling shots is both a blessing and a curse in, in this extent. So you are ultimately collecting all the success, however, <laughs> and you can steer it any way you want. But yes, you're totally right. It might be heavy for everyday life to just to go alone. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So yeah, I mean, like what's what's next right now? I mean, as we head into the end of the year, I know you're very excited about user list. Um, so you actually, you, you mentioned that you're in customer development phase right now. What does that actually mean on your end? Like, what are the things that you're working on there? Well, great question. We are, so me and a while, while Claire is going to be interviewing people and deciding what exactly future wise we're going to build me and Benedict, we're going to start working on the skeleton of the product, you know, basic design, basic, uh, development, just the gist of it. And then it should all come together her insights and our thing <laughs> to the MVP launch. Also, some assets that I'm working on. For example, I'm responsible for uh, building the site, setting up the blog, and doing some other, you know, organizational work. Very cool. Well, that's over at userlist.io. And your personal site, of course, is uibreakfast.com. We're going to get all these things linked up in the show notes. But, uh, but Jane, it's been really cool to, uh, to catch up with you and, and hear your story. And, uh, and by the way, everyone check out your podcast. Where, where can folks find that again? It's uibreakfast.com slash podcast. And of course, it's on iTunes. Just search for UI Breakfast. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jane. Thank you. It's been amazing to share. Okay, that wraps it up. Did you enjoy this one? I mean, it couldn't have been that bad. You made it this far into the episode, right? So head over to iTunes, leave a five-star review. I'd really appreciate it. And if you're not on my newsletter yet, there's a lot more happening over there. And so you'll definitely want to get up to speed. You can join over on my site, castjam.com. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.